welcome to the weekly podcast of River Valley Church. We're glad you're here. Our heart is to lead people to Jesus and launch them into their God-given purpose. So we pray you would encounter God in a fresh, new way today. To learn more about our church, visit rivervalley.org. Now, let's tune in to this week's message. River Valley, it's an exciting weekend to be able to introduce to you our guest speaker uh, who is a family member of our church, somebody that has been doing the journey of reaching people for Jesus for a long, long time. Just want to highlight right now that our lead pastors, Pastor Robin Becco, would be here to introduce the guest speaker, but they are off celebrating their 35th wedding anniversary. They're not in the room, but can we celebrate our lead pastors, Pastor Robin Becco? celebrating 35 years married. Grateful for healthy leaders, healthy pastors, and glad that they're away celebrating that anniversary. When Pastor Rob and Becca started this church, they said, we want to be a missions church. We want to be a mission-sending church. And that's exactly what they did, even before their first service, determining we are going to support missionaries out of the church budget every single month. And they wanted to select a young missionary, young missionary couple, saying, as we build River Valley Church over the decades, we want to do life together with missionaries, and they selected, uh, now 28 years ago, uh, young missionaries, Dick and Jen Brogdon, and we've been doing life together as a church and as a, a ministry. Nobody knew other than God that Dick and Jen would go on to start an organization called Live Dead. Many of you have heard that as one of our great Kingdom Builders partners. Live Dead is a church-building organization serving all around the world, specifically in the areas that are unreached. There's 42% of the world that does not know that Jesus is alive and well, has paid for their sins, and offers them life and salvation and eternity in heaven forever and ever and ever. Dick and Jen, lead that organization, and I would love to welcome to the platform. Can you stand to your feet and welcome Dick Brogdon? What if we have it wrong? What if we're not supposed to be living our best life ever here on this earth? What if the gift of eternal life really is the grand prize and that we have unending time to be with family and friends and to have adventures and to live securely and to eat the food that we love and do the things and activities and the hobbies that we enjoy? What if all of that, without any trouble and any problems, is out there on the other side of the return of Jesus, and we're not actually supposed to be living our best life ever on the earth right now? What if we're supposed to be living with some agitation and being unsettled and unfulfilled and difficulty and persecution and suffering? What if the church is actually supposed to be living right now with a little bit of apostolic nasty? I was in Springfield, Missouri yesterday. 
I saw a car in front of me. It had two bumper stickers. One of them said, my religion is kindness. And the second one said, nuke the homophobes. <laughs> Ironic, isn't it? The logic is accept everyone unless they don't accept what I believe as true and then do violence against them. We live in a nasty age, and when I say apostolic nasty, I am not talking a spirit of violence or being a bigot or being against everyone else and being hateful and being full of self. That's not what I mean when I mean apostolic nasty. Let me explain it this way. Have you ever heard of the name Michael Jordan? Tiger Woods? Muhammad Ali, Larry Bird, Tom Brady, Kobe Bryant. What made those guys world champions over and over again? At the level of professional athletics, everybody's a superb athlete, right? Everybody has coaches. Everybody has gyms. Everybody has opportunity to travel in the jet. They all have the same advantages. What made those guys and guys like them win over and over and over again? They had a little bit of nasty. They had an edginess. They weren't just going to beat you in game seven of the NBA playoffs. They weren't just going to beat you in the Super Bowl. They were going to beat you at practice. They were going to beat you first in line to the bus to get the best seat. They were going to beat you at tiddlywinks. They were going to get the best food in the cafeteria. Whatever it was, they were going to beat you and enjoy doing it, right? They had an edginess about them. They had a little bit of nasty. So here's how I define apostolic nasty. A consecrated edginess. Not a carnal edginess. A consecrated edginess that fixates on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all the nations. My contention today is that we, the church, are supposed to be living with a little bit of apostolic nasty, a consecrated edginess that fixates on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all the nations. Apostolic nasty is based in the love of Jesus. In John 13... It's Thursday night. It's the last night in the life of Jesus. He's going to the cross the next day. He gathers his disciples together for a meal. And at the beginning of John 13, it says, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And then you know the story. He washes their feet. In the midst of that washing their feet, a discussion arises, and as Jesus is unpacking that, he is actually taking bread, and he's saying, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter, you know Peter, he's trying to orchestrate things. He's giving motions to John. Who is it? And so John asks Jesus, which one of us, Lord, is going to betray you? And Jesus says, the one that dips the bread in the cup with me, that is the betrayer. Do you remember that? Interestingly, everything they were doing in that Passover meal had precedent in the Old Testament. These were Jews following a Jewish ceremony. 
And the cups, four different cups, and the, the different greens, and the lamb, everything had significance from the Old Testament story. And when Jesus dips the bread in the cup and gives it to Judas, it has an Old Testament referent. And what happens is, Jesus identifies the one who's going to betray him. And then that betrayer, after Jesus says, what you have to do, do quickly, gets up and goes. And I was just in a meeting a few weeks ago with a believer from Saudi Arabia. And he asked us, we were all leaders, he asked us this question. Peter's really aggressive. He's trying to find out who the betrayer is. He asks the question. Jesus shows them who the betrayer is. Judas gets up to leave to betray Jesus. Why didn't Peter or the other apostles stop him? Why didn't they jump on him and tackle him and not let him leave the room? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Well, this Saudi believer, he has an hypothesis, and this is what he said. Because everything Jesus did had an Old Testament reference, That dipping the bread in the cup and sharing it happened only one other time in all of the Old Testament. And my Saudi believer friend asked all of us who are missionary leaders, do you know where that was? And none of us did. It's in Ruth chapter 2. It's when Boaz is inviting Ruth into covenant love, redeemer, kinship, protection with him. He says to her, dip your bread in my cup. And what my Saudi friend said was this, that those disciples who just a couple chapters before had been arguing about who was the greatest and who would rule, when they find out that Jesus is dipping that bread in the cup and giving it to Judas, it's not really triggering in their minds that that's the one who's going to betray him. What they see Jesus doing is saying, Judas, I'm offering you covenant kinsman, redeemer, love. Judas, I love you. Judas, I know you're about to betray me. What you have to do, do quickly. But the very last image I want in your head, the very last emotion I want coursing through your breast is Judas, I love you. I forgive what you have done. I know what you're going to do. And I love you anyway. Judas, I love you. And the reason that the disciples don't jump up and tackle Judas is, what? Judas is the favored one? Judas gets the bread dipped in the cup? Judas is the beloved? I thought I would sit at the right hand and the left. And Judas is the one that Jesus loves? And they were so stunned, they don't do anything. And Judas leaves. When we talk about apostolic nasty and living a sacrificial life, and I'll talk about that more in a moment, I just want to remind you, we're not talking about the edginess or the meanness or the critical spirit that the world has because we're all Judas. We all betray Jesus. And what Jesus wants us all to know over and over again and how I would like to base my remarks that follow is simply this. Jesus knows what you've done. He knows how you're going to betray him when you walk out these doors. And he still says to you, I love you. I love you to the end. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Apostolic nasty is foundationally rooted in the timeless, eternal understanding and wonder that Jesus loves me. But he doesn't just love me. 
He loves all the betrayers of the world. All 3.15 billion who've never heard of him. 42% of the world, 7,000 people groups who have no understanding of what they have done to him. He loves them to the end. That's the foundational understanding of apostolic nasty. And from there we can say that apostolic nasty is focused on the unreached. Our God is a missionary God. The Bible is a missionary book. The church is to be a missionary people. And if we don't understand missions, we don't understand the Bible, and we don't understand the God of the Bible. And we can see this all the way through the scriptures. I'll just start with an anecdote out of Mark chapter 11. We have in the book of Mark something that's called a Markan sandwich. And what Mark will do, he'll start one story, interrupt himself, tell the end of that uh, first story. And so that second story is like a sandwich in between the two halves of the first story. And in Mark chapter 11, it's the last week in the life of Jesus. He's going to the cross, the same time period that the John 13 story comes out of. He sees a fig tree. It's not producing fruit. Jesus curses it. And then the story shifts to the temple. And Jesus goes into the temple and he enters the temple mount. And remember how the temple was constituted. The Holy of Holies, one man, once a year, the high priest. And then the holy place where the priest could minister, then the court for the Jewish men, then the court for the Jewish ladies. But the most peripheral part of the temple mount, the largest space on that mountain, was called the court of the Gentiles. And God had designed the temple that all the nations of the world, the Greeks, the Babylonians, the Romans, the non-Jews, they could come and meet with Jehovah God. And on this last week in the life of Jesus, his heart burning with a passion to die for the sins of the world, he goes into his house, into the place that he had designed for all the nations to meet him. And what does he find? A marketplace, buying and selling. No room for the nations. And the great mission's heart of Jesus erupts. Now, I don't know what your image of Jesus is, but he wasn't white. He didn't have feathered hair. He didn't walk around with a cute little lamb on his shoulder all the time. He was a Middle Eastern God-man. He had some things that made him really, really upset and his blood boil. And here's the angriest that we see Jesus in all of the Gospels. I grew up, I was born in Kenya. I grew up in the Arab world. Been to a lot of markets, maybe on your trips overseas, you've been to a market in the Arab world or Africa, Asia. And do you think, you know, there's all kinds of things going on, right? There's goats, there's camels, there's sheep, there's incense, there's used clothes, there's stolen cell phones, there's all kinds of noise and all kinds of spices. Do you think it would have worked for Jesus to go into that temple and say, oh, excuse me, we kind of need this place for worship. Would you take your wares and exit stage left? Do you think that would have been successful? In fact, John says he makes a whip and he drives him out of the temple. He's knocking tables over. He is visceral. He is violent. He is forceful. And he quotes Isaiah 56. Don't let the eunuch say, here I am a, a dry tree. Don't let the foreigner say there's no place for me in God's house. For even there will be given a place better than sons and daughters for my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. And he drives them out of the temple. And then he leaves the temple and he goes past that fig tree and the fig tree is withered. And Mark is telling us 
that these two stories have the exact same meaning. The meaning is this, true for us as it is true for the tree and the temple. When an institution of God, fig tree or temple, does not accomplish the purposes of God, he shuts it down. The tree was not producing fruit, cursed and dead. The temple is not producing the fruit of the nations, all the tribes and tongues of the world, and the very place that God had instituted for worship. He shuts it down when it is not accomplishing his purpose. This church and the church of God around the world is designed for the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all the nations. And if we do not participate that with apostolic passion, if we are not engaged with heart, mind, soul towards the glory of God in all the nations. I don't care who you think you are. God's going to shut you down. If he shut down the temple and cursed the fig tree, if we do not have all of our capacities surrendered to the glory of God globally, he's going to shut you down. And I'm not asking you to criticize other people's work or other ministries or other churches. I'm just asking you this. What's in your temple? What's on your cell phone? What are you watching on Netflix? What are you thinking about? How crass is your humor? What are your motivations for wealth and popularity? Do you get up and go right to Jesus in the word? Or do you make the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords stand in line behind pagan things like social media or email? What's in your temple? And if there's anything impure, unholy, not aligned with God's passion for his own glory in all the earth, you have to cast it out. And you might be saying, well, that's just one radical story. Well, just three chapters before, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus takes his disciples on a missions trip. 30 kilometers off the beaten path north of the Sea of Galilee is a town called Caesarea Philippi. It's a pagan town. It's a wicked town. They'd kill their children, throw them in a pit. They were immoral. They were sensual. There was a law on the books at one point you couldn't even wear clothes in the main street of the town. You had to go naked. There's not a Jewish population there that is worshiping Jehovah of any size. And so Jesus intentionally takes a short-term missions trip, takes his disciples to Gentile territory, and he stands in front of that pit where they would cast their dead aborted babies into, and he makes this declaration. I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Because euphemistically, the people in that town call that pit the gates of hell. And Jesus is saying, my gospel and the church that will be planted will go into all the earth, to all the nations, to all the religions, crossing all the barriers of culture and language and economy, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? Amen. And the disciples rejoice and they're happy. Yay, Jesus, this is great. And then he goes on to say in the next verses, and in order for that to happen, I must go back to Jerusalem. I must suffer and I must die and be crucified. Whereupon Peter says, oh, no, Lord, that will never happen to you. And then the text says, Jesus looked at the disciples as if to include them in what he would say next and then turned to Peter and what does gentle Sunday school flannel graph Jesus say to his own disciple in a classic 
case of member care. Get behind me, Satan! For you're not worthy, or you're not thinking of the things of God, but the things of man. What's going on in that text? Jesus is saying, the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. And it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us everything. And if anyone on his team says, oh no, we're not going to pay that price, what does apostolic, nasty Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan. For you're not thinking of the things of God, but the things of man. Apostolic nasty is focused on the unreached. Where has the gospel not gone? Where is Jesus not glorified? And we will collectively, as a body, suffer, be rejected, die, pay any price because of the worth of Jesus. And if we're going to do that, we're going to have to pay the price because apostolic nasty requires death to self. We have this wonderful verse in Philippians chapter 3. I want to know Christ. Amen? And the power of his resurrection. Amen? Amen. What comes next? And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death so that by any means we may attain to the resurrection of the dead. We like the first two phrases. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. We're not so sure about the third. The fellowship of his sufferings. The context for the sufferings of Jesus was the redemption of the world. Every tribe, every people, every nation. And Paul is simply reminding us this. That apostolic nasty requires suffering. Death to self. Trouble. And sacrifice. And that there is a beauty within that. There is a knowledge of God, he is inferring, that we only gain when we join Jesus in suffering for the redemption of the world. Don't feel sorry for those that are in prison. Don't feel sorry for missionaries who leave home. Don't feel sorry for those who are paying the ultimate price to know Jesus. They know Jesus in a way better than we do. They know Jesus in a way that cannot be discerned in an air-conditioned building, surrounded by Christians, in a country that is safe. There's wonderful privileges to that, but when we have none of that, and everything is stripped away, and everything is broken, and everything is lost except the priceless treasure of the presence of Jesus, there's a knowledge of God there that can't be found anywhere else. And we should have a jealousy to know Jesus in that way. We see this also in the life of missionaries who've gone ahead of us and in the life of Paul. Let me just give a couple illustrations. In 1960, two missionaries went to the United Arab Emirates before it was even called that. At the time, it was called the Trucial States. They rented an old Land Rover and they drove into the desert to an oasis town called Al Ain, catchment area of just over a thousand people. And there they found a lady who had been trying to give birth for three days. 
Her bladder was so distended with urine that she couldn't give birth. They didn't have, they were both medical doctors. They didn't have their instruments. So the man opened up the hood of that old Land Rover and dug around in the engine for the smallest diameter hose he could find, cut it out, made a catheter, handed it to his wife. She inserted it into the lady, drained the bladder. A healthy baby was delivered. And the sheikh, which means the ruling elder of that village, said, I know that you are of a different faith persuasion than I am, but you just saved the life of one of our ladies. I want to give you permission to come and start a clinic. Save the life of our Muslim women and children. And so they did. And over time, that clinic became a hospital which exists today. The sixth child born in that hospital was the son of that sheikh who gave them permission. That sheikh was the founder of the United Arab Emirates, and his son today is the president, the most powerful man in the country, giving his favor to that hospital, giving his finances to that hospital, and that hospital is still proclaiming the word of God into the region. The interesting thing and why I tell you this story is, however, at the beginning, they didn't have a lot of money or didn't have wealth. They didn't have electricity. And so they didn't have a blood bank. And so what the staff of the hospital would do would put their names on the wall with the type of blood. And so when blood was needed, they would donate it. And Dr. Kennedy, the woman, was O negative, the universal donor. So she gave more blood than anyone else. She was always donating her blood. One time she was operating on a lady, began to hemorrhage. She scrubbed out, gave her blood, saved her life, scrubbed in, saved the baby's life as well. And here's the point of the story. It's simply this. She gave so much blood so often that she was always tired and frail. And in fact, she lived anemic. Is there anyone here who in your own way would be willing to live anemic for the glory of Jesus in all the world. To so sacrifice your time or your finance or your travel, even maybe moving away from family and friends and everything that you know, to live in weakness and to live in some simplicity and to live in sacrifice. For the knowledge of Jesus, incomparable, unattainable in safety and security, and his glory amongst all the nations. We see this in the life of Paul. We know that Paul, before he was converted, was rough, right? He's persecuting the church. He's hunting down the Christians. And somehow we think that after the Damascus Road experience that Paul got all nice and fluffy, right? Because after all, this guy wrote 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, love is gentle, love is this, love is that, right? The same dude wrote Galatians. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you so soon leave the gospel of grace to follow that of law? You might as well go the whole way and castrate yourself. Don't get mad at me. That's in the Bible, <laughs> right? I rebuke Peter to his face. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, he says to the head of the Sanhedrin. John Mark, you're off the team. People causing trouble in the church, turn them over to Satan for the redemption of their souls. And the same guy that wrote the love chapter three chapters later, as he closes the epistle to the Corinthians, he says, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. What is that? In all of those references, if we would dig down into them exegetically, the gospel was at stake. 
the extension of the glory of Jesus to all the peoples of the world. And whenever anyone got in the way of the gospel going to the nations, Paul ran them over. And he was unapologetic about that. Because he had this consecrated edginess that fixated on the worth of Jesus and knowing Jesus and proclaiming Jesus to the nations. And he would not tolerate anything that got in the way. Now, he wasn't just attacking other people. He lived this out. He goes to Philippi in Acts chapter 16. A demon gets cast out of a young servant girl. Her handlers get upset. Their hope of profit is lost. Paul and Silas are beaten, bloodied. They are put into prison. You know the story, an earthquake. They're singing hymns. The Philippian jailer and all his household get saved. And after all of that, if we read at the end of Acts 16, the magistrates come and they beg Paul to leave the city. Upon which Paul says, nope, not leaving because I'm a Roman citizen. What's going on in this text? By Roman law, no citizen could be punished without due process. You could not beat Paul unless he'd had a trial. And so those magistrates had violated their own law. And in Greco-Roman culture, you had client status privilege, right? You had this patron who would have the power, they would have the wealth, and they would offer a, a privilege to a poor person, and that per, poor person would then serve them. And so the, the patrons had the power, and the clients would offer obedience. And at the beginning of the story, the magistrates had the power. They beat Paul and Silas, put him in prison. But because they broke Roman law, that power is inverted. And when Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen, they know they're in trouble. All he has to do is report them to the governor. They'll lose their job, their status, their money. So they come cap in hand and say, we're so sorry, we messed up. Please don't get us in trouble. Please just leave. My question is simply this. Why did Paul wait to play the Roman card until after they beat him up, bloodied him, and put in prison. He didn't have to go through any of that. As soon as he was arrested, he could have just been like, boop, Roman card, can't touch me. Why? I think the answer is given for us at the end of the chapter, the very last verse. Before he leaves Philippi, he goes back to Lydia's house where the brethren are meeting. And by that, culturally, he's saying, do you see this woman? Do you see the church in her house? She's with me. Keep your hands off of her. I'm leaving town, but she's under my protection and the church in her house. And if you lift one finger against her, I'll come back to town, report you to the governor, and life as you knew is over. Keep your hands off the church. Only possible because he bled for it. Is there anyone here willing to lay down your American card? It's not wrong to be American. It's not wrong to have a good job. It's not wrong to have an IRA. It's not wrong to have a nice little cabin up on the lake. It's not wrong to have free babysitting because you live near your parents. It's not wrong to have sidewalks or Chick-fil-A. None of those things are inherently sinful. But is anyone here willing to lay them down and leave home and go to the nations and bleed a little bit for the good of the church? If Paul wouldn't have done that, the church is unprotected, and the Philippian jailer and his family never get saved. But because he was willing to lay down privilege and to participate in the sufferings of Jesus, the church in Philippi is planted and established. 
apostolic nasty is going to require dying to self. I have three applications tonight, and I want to illustrate it with some of your very own. I'm going to ask Lisa Marie Schaefer to come and join me here on the platform. Lisa Marie and her friends, on Wednesday mornings, they get up very early, and they pray that God will raise up 500 missionaries from this church. And week after week, as often as they can convene, they get together and they pray. You know what that is? That's apostolic nasty. You might be thinking, I'm not Paul, I'm not Jesus. Well, you can be Lisa. You can get up early if you're 13 years old. Or if you're a businessman, you can organize a prayer meeting in the office. If you're a teenager, if you're a retiree, you don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to have an education. You don't have to leave Minnesota. You can live in apostolic nasty with Lisa. I want to ask Matt Longawa to join me on the stage. Matt's a contractor. He has been a partner with Live Dead with his wife, I think from the beginning, volunteering with us. He almost lives in this reverse tithe mentality, and he represents all that is beautiful about kingdom builders. He takes of his wealth and sacrificially invests in the nations. He doesn't put a limit on that. He increases that year by year as God gives him faith. He and his wife serve. It's not just money that they're giving. They're giving time. And again, Whatever your business, whatever your income, this again is not about wealth. It's about consecration. How much are you willing to live on so you can give that much more for the glory of Jesus to the ends of the earth? And are you satisfied with what you did last year? Are you saying this year by faith, I'm going to live on less so the nations can have more? Matt is living out apostolic nasty. Kingdom builders is apostolic nasty. And we can approach it out of our largesse and our excess, or like he and his family do, we can approach it from a sacrificial posture, ever increasing by faith what we give for the nations. I'd like the Galloway family to join me on the stage. Patrick, Brandy, Will, Wesley, and Brielle. These are some of our 500. I believe we're up to 202. Is that right, Justin? 203. And the Lord is leading this family to leave all that is comfortable and all that is safe. To leave the 99, I love how the text says, what man of you will not leave the 99 to go find that other sheep? They're living out apostolic nasty. So when you think apostolic nasty, this is apostolic nasty. <laughs> See this? This is apostolic nasty. <laughs> this is a consecrated edginess that fixates 
on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all peoples. So we pray, we give to kingdom builders, and we go. I'm not the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit wants all of us to be engaged at some level. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? And we're going to pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that all of this starts in how you love us and you love us to the end. And because you have loved us to the end, Jesus, help us to love to the ends of the earth by praying, by giving, and by going.